So I'd love for you to join me in Luke 15, if you would. I love that song. I, I don't know, as we were singing it, it made me think of when I was a kid. I don't, I don't know why. I, I think that we sang that song when I was growing up, and it made an impression on me as a, as a youngster in worship. I, I, love, that, I love that song. Um, I'm glad Daryl sang it, and I'm glad he led all five verses of it, because it tells a beautiful story, and I love the way that it, it takes the story here at the first part of Luke 15, and it weaves in the story of the cross, and that's what I hope to do for the next few minutes with you all today, is to take a couple of stories here at the first part of Luke 15, particularly one phrase there, and close today in a little bit by weaving in the story of the cross, because as I mentioned to you a couple of times lately, it keeps coming back to me, is, you know, I, I think that most of our struggles and most of our questions are answered most beautifully at Calvary. And so when we talk about trust a couple of weeks ago, we end by going to the cross, because how do you learn to trust God? I mean, how do you, how do you know that God's got your best interest at heart? Well, you've got to go to the cross. And your answer is, absolutely, God... If he'll do that, and Paul, Paul says this explicitly, if God will do that, then how in the world will he ever withhold from us anything we need? So today we're going to talk to you, we're going to talk about, about repentance, about sin, and uh, I guess that's a wonderfully pleasant thing to talk about, right? You excited? Well, let's, let's do it. Let me, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit today, and I, and I gave this introduction at the beginning of worship, but... The, the reason we're going to discuss this in conjunction with what we talked about a couple of weeks ago is just to give you an idea of the way I'm thinking, the way I'm pr- approaching this idea, is I made a decision. I was going to present some, a few lessons, three or four lessons on some basic fundamental attitudes that we ought to have in our relationship to Christ. And, and I was thinking about the way we come to Christ. You know, we come to him initially by faith. We hear the gospel, but your, your journey toward Christ begins with your conviction in your heart that you believe that he is the son of God. And, and that faith, that faith, that trust, you trust in him. You believe that he is the son of God. You believe that he died on the cross for your sins. So we spent a couple of weeks talking about trust. But that trust, that faith, that it's not going to stop there. You're not going to stop simply by believing. It's not an intellectual, just mental assent or intellectual conviction and historical facts. So it's not just about believing that something happened. It changes you. It changes who you are. It changes your orientation toward life. And specifically, it changes the way you think about yourself and the way you think about God, and it changes the way you think about your behavior. And so you can see how that faith, as you journey toward Christ, your faith leads you to repentance. So I mean, we give the plan of salvation maybe a little bit too, I don't know, a little bit too simply, but hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. That, that, that progression you see there, you hear the gospel, you believe in Jesus Christ, but that faith, all these are tied back to the cross, but that faith leads you to do what? Here, you believe the gospel, you believe in, in the cross, you believe that that one hanging on the cross was the son of God. When you believe that, it, you, you come to this conviction, wow, why did he do that? He did that because of what I've done, and that leads you to repentance. And so, as, as I progressed in my thinking about this, it just became an idea that, well, this is not something you do one time. You don't just believe in Christ as you, as you come, become a Christian. You don't just, it's not just a step. You, you check off the box, okay, I believe in Christ, and now I've repented, and now I've confessed, and now I've been baptized. You know, these, it's not just a one-time kind of thing, one and done kind of thing. It's a life of faith. It's a life of repentance. So we're going to go back and we're going to talk about this. 
today, this repentance idea. Now, let me put my cards out on the table. I think, and I think you'd probably agree with this, but I think there are people in any audience of this size, 300 plus, especially in our part of the world, we've got people here who are hyper convicted about your brokenness. We've got people in an audience like this, any audience that assembles in a church setting like this, who you probably don't need anybody to stand up and tell you that you are a sinner because you live with that awareness in your heart and mind every day. And what you need probably more than anything else is you need, to, you need someone to stand up and tell you that, yes, you are a sinner, but Christ died on the cross for you and he has forgiven you and he's a God of grace, kindness, and mercy. And you are forgiven you need to live without that guilt. You need, to live, you need to live a life of freedom because, yes, you have sinned, but, I mean, but God, who's rich in mercy with his grace, you know, poured it out on us, uh, Ephesians 2. That's the message you need, all right? So, again, I'm just putting my cards out here on the table. But you got, you got folks like that, and some of you, some of you are there. You're in that little camp over here, okay? And then we've got other people. And this happens in any setting like this. We have Christians who sit in church pews every Sunday. They have been baptized. They go to a Bible-believing church like this one. But they don't care about sin. They don't care about, they don't care about their sinfulness. You've got folks in, in any assembly like this one who would call themselves Christians but they have become callous to their own sinfulness. And they have gotten to a point in their lives where they don't really even think about sin that much anymore, at least not their own. You know, they may think about those awful sinners out there somewhere, and they may think about other people in the church or other people at work, and man, they're, you know, committing these whatever sin, I don't know, sexual sin or drunkenness, or they're addicted to meth or, you know, whatever, whatever is going to be on that, on that list. You got folks in any assembly like this one who have kind of gotten to a point in your journey where you've stopped, you've stopped caring. There, there, there's, there are areas of, of your life, perhaps, that you just kind of blocked off. And you've, we, we kind of get to a point where maybe we, yeah, well, I've got this sin, but you know, I've had this sin for so long, I can't do anything about it. And, and so I've just got to hope, hope God is okay with it. So in any assembly like this one, you've got some people who are hyper-convicted, and then you've got folks who need to be convicted. I'm talking primarily to the latter this morning. Because it is an issue in the church where people become Christians, and then they, for whatever reason, they get calloused, or they think they can't do any better, or they think that God is such a God of grace, kindness, and mercy that he doesn't really care anymore about sin that much. He kind of looks the other way. He's like that grandfatherly figure who, looks, who overlooks all the indiscretions of his grandchildren. You know, they're perfect. I love them just like they are. So sometimes we, in our relationship to God, can become so enamored by a mistaken idea of a God of grace and think that because he's a God of grace, love, kindness, and mercy, and he is, don't hear me wrong, he is that. But we can emphasize that view of God to the exclusion 
of the fact that he is a God who hates sin. He hates it because of what it does to us. He hates it because it violates his holiness. He hates it because he sees what it does to the world. It is systemic. It is breaking societies. It's hurting people. It's hurting families. And God hates it. He hates it. And so if we don't think about the way God views about sin, then we're getting a one-sided view of God that's incomplete and inaccurate and inadequate. The Bible talks about repentance a lot. And I know what kind of world we live in. I mean, we all, we all live in the same world. We know the PC world we live in. We know that if you go see a secular psychologist, a secular counsel, the word sin is not going to come up in that conversation. It's not going to come up at all. What, what's going to come up is you're, you've got a sickness or you, you're, you're, you're thinking incorrectly. Or I mean, I'm not saying all this is necessarily wrong, only that it's incomplete. We live in a world where we don't talk about this a whole lot anymore because it's not I don't know it just seems a little quaint doesn't it to talk about sin these days talk it's a little bit too traditional a little bit too old-fashioned a little bit too 1920s or 30s or a little bit too, too Victorian a little bit too a little bit too you know previous unenlightened unscientific unintellectual you know it's a little bit a little bit old for us so we don't talk about it a lot God talks about it a lot and so I guess we should you got passages like this one. We'll get to Luke 15 in a minute, but you've got passages like this one in Ezekiel 18:20. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. You've got passages like Luke 13, 3 and 5. No, I tell you, but except you repent, you will all likewise perish, unless they misheard him. He says it again, two verses below. When those people came to Christ, came to faith in Christ in Acts 2, after having been convicted, they were present at the crucifixion. They were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Let all the house of Israel know for, know for certain that you have crucified, that God has made the same Jesus whom you've crucified, both the Lord and Christ. And they were cut to the heart and said, men and brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, you need to repent. You need to repent and be baptized. One chapter later in Acts 3 and verse 19, he says something very similar. Repent therefore. I mean, this repent or perish, it's, it's all over the place. It is the fact that you and I cannot have a relationship with God unless we are people who are living in this, with this orientation of constant repentance and coming to God in faith and repentance and confession over and over again. We live this life. We recognize, we trust in His forgiveness, but we don't ever forget about how He feels about sin. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. I mean, you can go on and on and on with those verses. They're all over the place. But now let's look at Luke 15. All right, let's talk about this for a bit. I want to do some kind of some word clusters, some... There's this idea that keeps popping up in this text, Luke 15, 1 and 10. We're talking mostly about the first 10 verses, but you've got that beautiful story that follows this. Um, I hate not to talk about it, but we just don't have time. The prodigal son story, which is the, kind of the ultimate. These, these stories are building to that. We're going to key in on the first couple here. Look, look what you've got here. This You've got these words that keep re reoccurring. And in our, in our text, Luke 15, if you've got it there in front of you, Tells us the stories. In, in the middle of those stories, verse 7, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. You know, God calls us sinners. You ever, I guess maybe in a, in a crowd like this, this doesn't sound weird, but 
in the world this sounds weird. I mean, you wouldn't go out on, on a talk show and say our biggest problem is we're sinners. Probably wouldn't say that. Maybe you would, but a lot of people wouldn't say that. Most, most people in the, world, in the world wouldn't say that. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is we don't give enough money to this. Biggest problem is taxes are too low or taxes are too high. Biggest problem is guns or gun control or lack of gun control. Biggest, biggest problem is, you know, on and on. Biggest problem is something political, something social, something. The Bible seems to indicate from beginning to end that the biggest problem in the world socially, the biggest problem in the world relationally is the fact that you and I are sinners. <laughs> we're broken. We're messed up. And in this text, he uses this word. Uh, verse 7, he says, there's one, over one sinner who repents. Down in verse 10, he says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That word sinner is a word that we need to use. We need to recognize. Down in the story of the prodigal son below, I mean, you've got hints all over the story of what the, what the younger son does. He goes out and he squanders his property in reckless living in verse 13. In verses 18 and 21, as he's coming back home, verse 18, he's planning the speech and he says, here's what I'm going to say to my father. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, no longer worthy to be called your son. Then when he gets home, verse 21, he says that to his father. At least he says part of it to his father. I have sinned. Biggest problem between us, biggest problem relationally between us and our father is, I have squandered what you have given me. I've rebelled against you. I've become a sinner. So you've got that, that notion throughout these stories. Then you've got this. We'll come back to the idea in a minute. But you've got this. You've got lost and found. Did you notice this? It's repeated. I wish you could see this in your, in your Bible if you highlight words right in the margins of your Bible, you might emphasize this. But verse 4, let me just point out how often this is repeated. Luke, Luke 15, verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, lost one of them, at the end of verse 4, he goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. Verse 5, and when he has found it, at the end of verse 6, I have found my sheep that was lost. In verse 8, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, at the end of verse 8, until she finds it. Verse 9, and when she has found it, in, at the end of verse 9, I have found the coin that I had lost. I mean, it's just this notion over and over again. In verse 24, the story of the prodigal son, um, he was lost and is found. At the end of verse 32, he was lost and is found. Do you notice this idea just pops up? How many times is that? I don't know, like six, eight times here? Law, I lost the sheep. I found the sheep. Lost the coin. Found the coin. Lost the boy. Found the boy. Lost and found. So there's something embedded in this idea of a sinner who repents. That, that this notion of the sinner. How did he become a sinner? How did she become a sinner? Well, he or she was lost. And the Bible story is about lostness becoming that which is found. That is the biblical narrative. Lost and found. Dead and alive. That's mentioned also in this text, verse 32. But lost and found is all over the place. And then there's this. There's this idea of joy. Did you notice this? I love this. In the stories, the shepherd found the sheep. Look at this, verse 5. He has found it. He lays it on his shoulders. What is he doing? The shepherd is rejoicing. At the end of verse 6, he goes back and he gathers his friends and his neighbors and he says, rejoice with me. I found the sheep that was lost. And verse 7 of Luke 15, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. 
And then look down in verse 9. She lost the coin. She found the coin. She gathers her friends and neighbors and she says to them, Rejoice with me. I found the coin. Verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I mean, these ideas, just, just over and over again. In the story of the prodigal son, verse 23, let us eat and celebrate. Verse 24, and they began to celebrate. And verse 25, you heard music and dancing. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. I know I'm going through that quickly, but I just want you to hear these, note, these, uh, these themes so there's this idea of sinner. There's a sinner here. There's lost and found. There's, uh, as, as, as a result of the, of the finding, there's joy, there's celebration, there's eating and drinking and dancing and, and just everything going on. Why? Because a sinner has been found. Let me just reflect on this with you for a little bit. What do we have? Repentance is a big deal. To God. It's a big deal to God. Cares about it a lot. You want to be someone who walks faithfully with the Lord? It's not going to happen when you start ignoring your sin. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen when you look the other way, when you laugh about sin, when you act as if, you know, well, everybody's a sinner, and so, you know, oh well, oh well. Oh well, we're in the same boat, right? We are on the same boat. But relationship to God, when you, when you draw closer to God, you, you, you agree more and more with what he says about your brokenness. You get closer to God, you become more like him. He's conforming. We talked about this a, a while back, this idea of God conforming us one degree by, degree by degree into his image. We become more like Christ. We, we get closer to God and we begin to love what he loves even more. We begin to hate what he hates even more. And God loves us. And he hates anything that hurts us and that influences or that, that negates that relationship that we have with him. God, God hates those things. It's not that God hates us in any respect, but God hates that which breaks us. And we become people who hate that even more. Here's a second observation. Let's talk about what it is, what repentance is and what it isn't. I want to do the second part of that first, what, what it is not. Um, I remember, this is, a, I guess, maybe a silly example, but maybe it's a good example of, of what repentance is not. When I was a kid, I had two sisters. Well, still, still do have two sisters. I was the youngest. <clears throat> I was the youngest of the three. And I'd get in trouble, as boys are prone to do. Girls are prone to do, too, I guess. I would often get in trouble for hurting one of my sisters. You know, the way it happened with, within, within my own relationship with my sisters, I wasn't terribly sorry about hurting my sisters until I got caught. And then I became immensely remorseful. Can you relate to that? Very, very, very sorry over what I had so egregiously done to my sister. And I think sometimes maybe we equate sorrow with sin. And that sorrow can come from different places. It can come because of consequences often. I'm sorry because, not, not necessarily because of what I did, but I'm sorry because of what happens to me because of what I did. That's not repentance. That's not, that's not repentance. That, that may be something like 
sorrow. And sorrow is related here. These ideas are embedded together. You know, they're all in here together. I'm, repentance carries with it a notion of sorrow, but it's not sorrow exclusively, and it's not sorrow for the wrong reason. It's not sorrow because I got caught uh, or some other consequence, some other negative consequence. So that's not it. It's not, her, it's not penance. There's this notion in some religious circles, you know, of, of doing penance, of, of um, I mean, you know, like self-flagellation. This, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this negative thing to myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I suffer because of what I've done. As if my own suffering, my own self-flagellation is going to bring about some sort of res- resolution. That's not repentance. That's not repentance. So it's not remorse. It's not this, it's not this notion of penance alone. It's not self-condemnation. It's not just, oh, man, I'm so, man, I'm awful. I hate myself. You know, I'm just such a terrible person. I, God must hate me too. I'm, I'm, I'm so unworthy to be one of his. I just hate myself. I hate what I've done. I hate, you know, it's not self-condemnation. So we've got to be careful. And, and some of us may kind of trip up with this because we think, uh, you know, if I hate myself enough, then that's got to be repentance. No, that's not repentance. That's self-condemnation. You're hating what God loves. God loves you desperately. Don't hate yourself. Don't hate yourself. Don't condemn yourself. God saves you. So it's not that. It's something different. So that, those are some things that it's not. It is, though, this. It carries with it some different notions. It is conviction. It is conviction. It is an intellectual component here. It's conviction that what I have done, let me put it this way. It is agreeing with what God says about what I've done, about what we've done. God says this behavior is wrong. It is rebellion, it's sin, it's transgression, it's iniquity. And we're agreeing with God on that. Now, God's right whether we agree with him or not. But part of the process, part of this idea of coming to repentance is that we recognize that this behavior, what I've done or what I haven't done, what we've said or what we haven't said, this action or inaction, it is sin. So it's a conviction that what God says is true. That comes with studying your Bible and becoming convicted about what God uh, says about what the Holy Spirit convicts your heart about these things. So it is conviction. It does carry with it this idea of contrition, of contrition. And so I mentioned a moment ago, remorse itself is not repentance, but remorse, contrition, these, these aspects are involved in repentance. They're, they're part of it. I love this passage in Psalm 51. I hope to maybe come back to this in just a minute, a little bit more. But listen, this is a psalm, by the way. This is a psalm David wrote after he had been convicted of a sin with Bathsheba and confronted by Nathan the prophet, and David is overwhelmed with, I think Psalm 51 is a great story of repentance. He's overwhelmed with this. At the end of this, he says, in verse 17, David says, the sacrifices of God, listen to this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Man, if I read that right, you know what God wants more than he wants what you're doing right now? He, what he wants more than you're singing, more than you're praying, more than you're sitting here for a sermon, more than you're engaging in communion, more than you're giving whatever percentage. of You know what he wants more than that? He wants your heart to be contrite with reference to your actions and inactions toward him. That's what he wants. His sacrifice, the sacrifice he wants is your heart to be broken and contrite. So it involves contrition. It also involves, listen to this, it involves change change. Repentance that doesn't involve a commitment 
to making changes is not real repentance. It's something else. I don't know what you call that. Call it remorse. Uh, I don't know what you call it, but it's not repentance because repentance involves a change. The, the, the prodigal son, he came to himself. He's in the pig pen eating whatever he could eat. Comes to himself. I love that biblical expression. He comes to himself. That's not repentance, not fully. It's, it's, process, it's part of it. He comes to himself. This is a conviction. Man, look where I am. Look what my sin has done to me. Look, I have hurt my father and I've hurt my heavenly father. I've done all this stuff. He comes to himself and he says, I'm going to go. I'm going to go home. And so there's change there. And he follows that up with going home to the father. So repentance involves not just sitting around beating ourselves up, talking about how awful we are. You know, just some people, sometimes people in Christian circles do that. We're just, you know, we're all, we're all broken. We're all messed up. And let's just all be broken and messed up together. Well, God doesn't, God doesn't leave us there. You know, we're, we're broken and messed up. Yeah. But God's calling us to holiness. He's calling us to sanctification. So there's change involved in this coming to God. And then there's this, this aspect of repentance. It is a constant thing. Let me explain that. I don't want you to misunderstand this. I'm not suggesting that anytime you feel good about your relationship to God, then you're somehow wrong because you need to be beating yourself up all the time, constantly. You know, it's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying repentance isn't something you did right before baptism and it stopped. Well, I did that. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, checked it off my box, I'm done with it. I'm in Christ now, I'm a baptized believer, I come to church, you know, I'm good. I'm good. That's not the way it is. Because we live a life of self-examination. And in fact, I think 1 John 1 is very, very relevant here, don't you think? Let me read you a little bit here from 1 John because uh, he's dealing with people who were maybe struggling with this aspect. He says, verse 7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us from all sin. What does that mean, John? Well, it means this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He's talking to believers, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What John is saying there is, to, to Christians, he's saying, your life must be characterized by constant awareness of your sins and your repenting and your confessing. God keeps on forgiving. God keeps on blessing. God keeps on saving. But we also are made aware of our problems in our relationship to God. It's a constant thing. It's an orientation. It's a lifestyle. It is your and my coming to faith in Jesus daily. We trust in him daily. It's not something we did once and we're done with it. We trust in him daily. And when we identify with Christ, when we recognize what he's done, we are convicted again and again and again. See, there's a, there's a balance here. And I feel this struggle now in talking to you about it because I don't want you to think, I don't want anybody here to think that, oh man, that, that what this means is, that I am just, if I'm not constantly beating myself over, up over my sin, then there's something wrong with me. That if, I, if I'm not, you know, 24-7 confessing sin because I'm always messed up, I don't want you to think that. I want you to trust in the grace of God. I want you to recognize He forgives and He loves and He lavishes His grace on us and His mercy is, it just has no bounds. You know, I want you to be convicted of that. This is not about you're going in and out of salvation 25 times a day. Every time you sin, you're, you're in and out, you know. It's not that. It's an awareness 
of what God is doing in you to bring you into this sanctification. This is an, a lifelong process of what God is doing in the hearts of his people. We trust fully in his forgiveness and we also recognize we don't deserve it. This is how we relate to, to God. Here's the last one. It leads to eternal joy. I want, I, want to, I want you to think about this for just a sec, about what he says in Luke 15. It's no coincidence that each one of those stories ends on a note of joy. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was lost, and now he's found. He was dead, and now he's alive. And there's this big party going on. And I think it's a pretty neat image and it's how these stories end. I think it's a pretty neat image for us to recognize. Every time a sinner repents, there's a party in heaven. Every time we become convicted of our having rebelled against God, the angels rejoice. God is rejoicing. Isn't that a beautiful thing? This is not a negative thing. Repentance shouldn't be a negative subject. It's growing closer to God because we're recognizing the things that keep us from being more like Him. Repentance is a good, is a good thing. It is a positive thing. This lesson, this, these lessons we learned from Luke 15, I hope that we will take them and it will change us. I want to close by talking to you about, just briefly, Psalm 51, and as it relates to the cross, I said, as we talked about that song earlier that Daryl led, that weaving in the story of the cross, you see, what happens here is when you and I don't take sin seriously, we just develop this kind of, I don't know, this just a kind of a casual attitude about sin. What's happening is we haven't spent enough time at the cross. Because if you ever wonder how bad sin is, if you ever have any doubts about, you know, maybe sin isn't that big of it. Maybe, maybe my gossip, you know, maybe, maybe this, you know, maybe the, the way I'm treating my spouse, um, the way I'm talking, the language I'm using, the, the jokes I'm telling, the jokes I'm laughing at, my attitude toward the poor, my, my racist attitude. You ever wonder if those things matter to God? Go to the cross. Because that's what nailed him to the cross. That's what put him there. Your, my, your gossip, my gossip, our racism, our distorted sexuality, our unkind words, our flippant attitude toward those who are disenfranchised or at the margins of society for whatever reason. Those things are what put him on the cross. And so, like I mentioned to you earlier, our, our struggles are answered there at the cross. We, do, do you wonder if God loves you? Go to the cross. Do you wonder, can you trust God? Go to the cross. Do you wonder, does sin matter to God? Go to the cross. Go out there outside the walls of Jerusalem. Take a short walk to that place called Golgotha and look into the eyes of a 30-something-year-old man and you see there the love and the kindness and the mercy and the grace, but you hear his cries and you see that eclipse and you feel the earth shaking with that earthquake. Tell me if God cares about sin. My sin. Your sin. 
It's easy enough to recognize he cares about the sin of those awful folks out there, whoever they are. It's a little bit more personal to take it to our doorstep and to say, yeah, you know what? It's me. It's my impatience, my anger, my words, my flippancy, my spirit. It's my sins that nailed him to the cross. And when we get there, when we get there, we'll have the attitude of David. When he was convicted, he couldn't see the cross like we could see it, but he was convicted and he cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And you know what? God, according to his steadfast love, as we see at the cross, will be extended to us. According to your abundant mercy, and we see that mercy at the cross, blot out my transgressions and God will blot them out and you won't ever see them again. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and God will wash you completely. He'll wash you so thoroughly that your sins will never be seen again. Cleanse me from my sin. God cleans people completely. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And he goes on and on at the end of the chapter Near the end of the chapter, he says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. You know what? David did not have everything we have. And I think David would write this psalm a little bit differently if he were writing it on our side of the cross. But what we do know is that because of the cross, we can rejoice in forgiveness. doesn't mean we become flippant about sin, but it means we know the whole story. And we know that because of the cross, God is cleansing, cleaning, blotting out, blessing, and His mercy and His grace flow so beautifully and so wonderfully because of the cross. But let's not ever forget it's because of our sins that the cross had to happen. That'll cause us to be humble and contrite. This morning, if you're not a Christian, you know what? What, what we're talking about this morning, it relates to us all. If you, maybe you're visiting here for the first, first time. Maybe you're visiting a Christian assembly for the first time. You know what? We, I mentioned this earlier. We're all in the same boat. We're, we're all broken. We're all messed up. We've all sinned. And when you, when you become convicted of your own sin, it, it really stops a lot of this looking down your nose at other people. I think people who do that, they haven't spent enough time looking in the mirror, you know, because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But if you're here today as someone outside of Christ, you believe in Jesus, he'll change the way you think. He'll change the way you think about your past. You'll recognize you are a sinner and you need, you need the grace of God. But the story, the beautiful story is that God wants to save you and he will bless you today. Come to him in faith, turning away from your past, whatever that involves. Confess your belief in Jesus as God's only son. Be baptized for the forgiveness of all, all of your sins. God, in that act of baptism, goes back to the cross and God washes away thoroughly all of your sins. What a wonderful thing that is. If you need to respond to the invitation by baptism or for asking for prayers, we're here. We want to serve. Let's, let's stand and sing.